evidence and answers. If God is good, why does he command the genocide of entire civilizations? Scripture tells us that God is good and loving, but what does this mean? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today in our broadcast, Pat and Dr. Doug Potter discuss these difficult challenges and answer the question of, is God a moral monster? If you're unable to hear any of these broadcasts, all of our messages are available on our website, that's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, here's our host, Pat Zucran, along with Dr. Doug Potter, with part two of the genocide in the Old Testament. In fact, we actually have to say that to talk about God is to talk about Him only analogously or only by analogy. That's the best we can do in terms of approaching Him. So we can't distinguish God's goodness from God Himself. They're indistinguishable. God is completely good, and it's not just that He's maximally good, like we might say of an angel. We're talking about absolute goodness. He goes beyond everything that we could think about Him in terms of goodness to the point that we, when we use the term good and understand good and then apply it to God, it can only be analogous uh, with respect to God. I think God will be consistent, you know, with his nature. So, you know, God won't do anything that's unloving. God won't do things that are evil. And so he won't say something, you know, that is evil, like rape is bad one minute and then good the next. What he does is consistent with his nature. That's exactly right. God is never the direct cause of any evil. And you have to understand that death is introduced because of Adam's sin, because of the fall, and becomes applicable to every human being. And of course, God being sovereign is the one that decides when we're born and when we die. Death is inevitable for every human being, and it's God who decides when it is. So you're right, God can never be the direct cause of any evil. Evil, whether it's natural evil that is suffered in the world or evil that is done by another human being, this is something that is only indirect. God holds everything in being or everything in existence, but he doesn't directly cause any evil. But it is important to point out, as the scriptures tells us, that he uses even evil that is done or evil that is suffered to bring out or to bring good and ultimately direct the world in terms of his plan of redemption and to direct the world towards being better. And ultimately, uh, my professor and yours used to say, this is not the, the best of all possible worlds, but it is the best way to the best of all possible worlds. And because evil has been introduced, it is God who is ultimately taking and bringing good out of the evil that has suffered and done in the world. Yeah. So, you know, is there a need then to justify God? This is where there may be some debate with respect to Christians, but if we take the classical view of God, as I've kind of sketched it out here, there is, in fact, I follow Paul in Romans chapter 9, asks and answer a very similar question. It's in a different context with respect to Israel, but he says there, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And he gives a categorical no answer to that. There is no reason to justify anything that God does because he is 
absolute goodness and can't do any evil directly. And he can only allow evil things to take place and ultimately use that to bring good out or even a greater good out of the world and what happens. And from our finite standpoint, we may see this bad thing and that bad thing and this bad thing over there. Uh, We may be overwhelmed at times by the evil that is in the world, but we don't see everything. And we don't see everything from an eternal perspective that God has, and we don't see everything uh, even in terms of what we could from our own finite perspective. So ultimately, we're not really in a position to bring any justification or judgment about God because He's not the kind of being that can be subject to or in need of any justification whatsoever. Uh, So it is important to understand because, again, atheists and agnostics will throw this at you and want you to justify God or want me to justify God. And again, there's just no need to do that because the problem that's taking place is that people who think God needs to be justified in some sense have a wrong view of God. They have a view of God that puts them in the category of a creature that needs moral improvement. And that's not the classical view, and that's not the category that I've carved out here with respect to God. If someone thinks God needs to be justified, they have an incorrect concept of God. Yeah, you bring up a good point there, you know, and also I think people emphasize God's grace and God's love, but they neglect the part that God is also holy and just and righteous. And there's a perfect balance in God of all those attributes. Yeah, and they exist in God, and and how they exist in God, they don't exist as separate attributes or separate properties in God. To a certain extent, it's a mystery to us how they do exist in God, but they exist in God simply because, again, whatever God is, He is holy and completely. So if we say God is loving, then He's all-loving. If we say God is knowing, He's all-knowing. And we, in our mind, have to make these distinctions with respect to God. But how all this exists in God, classically understood, all we can say is that they exist in Him simply. And of course, we as finite creatures can't talk about Him simply. We don't know Him face-to-face as He is in Himself. We only know Him through His effects and through creation, as uh, Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 1, we know his divine and invisible attributes through what God has made, which is creation itself. So we know these, and we think about these things only indirectly and attribute to them God only analogously. You know, when it comes to these Canaanite civilizations who are committing these atrocities, we would be appalled You know, if God let this go on continuously without bringing any kind of judgment, we would say he's not loving, he's not good to let this continue on. I gave an example once in a talk out here. I said, you know, if there was a preschool down the road here and we all knew that children were being molested by the teachers here, you know, and it was probably, and we knew, and some were being used in prostitution or human trafficking or whatever, and I'm the local sheriff, And I'm letting this go on and on. I'm driving by and I even go in there for lunch and say hi to the, and I don't do anything. You wouldn't say I'm a good sheriff. In fact, you'd have me fired in a minute. You know, so for God to allow these to continue to go on endlessly, we would question, we would end up questioning really the goodness and the love of God, wouldn't we? 
Yeah, absolutely. In fact, God isn't done in terms of the world and in terms of judgment. He will ultimately bring judgment to everyone, including the nations, to unbelievers individually. And believers, of course, escape a judicial judgment because their sin is forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And they receive a judgment with respect to their works and a reward with respect to their works and then heaven as their reward. But again, you're exactly right, and your analogy uh, fits in there. We would think less of God if ultimately he didn't bring a culmination to judge all of humanity and all the nations of the world, and everyone ultimately in the end will indeed be judged. Doug, what is the difference between Old Testament holy war and Islamic jihad? That's one of the hot issues that indeed uh, would exist today. And I think that we need to probably start with the issue of this whole notion of what is the true religion, because jihad is the development and the outworking of a false religion. God has not spoken or given revelation through Muhammad. He is not a true prophet. And while we might say, well, the killing, quote-unquote, in God's name may be similar or seem similar, this is a huge difference to make. The true religion God has spoken through, Judaism and extension of that in terms of Christianity, is indeed the true religion. So indeed, God has not spoken through every religion. The religions are contradictory, so it's worth pointing out that any notion of Islamic jihad being similar begins with settling the question, settling the issue as to whether Islam is a true religion or not. That must be dealt with first, because obviously if I show, well, it's indeed a false religion and Christianity is true and they're not compatible, then it really becomes a a moot point at that particular issue. They're not doing it in the true God's name. They certainly may be sincere about it, but they are sincerely deluded because Muhammad and Islam is not a true religion. Also, you know, if you read the jihad commands in the Quran, you know, like especially chapter nine, you know, fight those who do not believe in Allah nor the last day. Jihad is worldwide on unbelievers and it doesn't come to an end until the world comes under the banner of Islam. Whereas Old Testament holy war is just for a specific time for a specific group of people in a specific area. And once that was done you know, it comes to an end. Yeah, very good and important distinction to make. Absolutely. These commands, these banned commands that are given in the Old Testament, as we said before, they have no application to any other nation, any other person. They are strictly under the theocracy at this time period for Israel to do this because it's direct revelation from God. And there's just no way you can take these commands and justify them for anything else other than when they were given, to whom they were given, and by whom they were given, which is God himself. Yeah, so that would even apply, I believe, you know, to Christians today or even in past history, you know, who have gone to war in the name of Christ or in the name of God, you know, such as the Crusades or or other wars where they've gone to war in the name of God. And perhaps some have used these passages of holy war in the Old Testament to justify their cause. It would not apply to them, would it? No, it wouldn't. In fact, some in the Crusades, uh, if my understanding is right, actually did or at least tried to use these, uh, and that's completely completely violates, as we've pointed out, the context. I do hold that there is such a thing as a just war. It isn't just God giving the command that makes the war uh, just or not. There are grounds, uh, moral and other grounds, that could be brought forward with respect to a just war. So wars can be just, and they can be justified. That doesn't mean that everything that happens in a war is justifiable. 
viable, but the overall campaign or the overall war that might take place can be just. That may be a debate for another uh, radio program, but that is Mm -hmm. important to point out. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think we did a series on just war, and, and you're right there. You know, as you mentioned, Israel did not fulfill the command and completely wipe out these civilizations. And so, you know, we touched on it a bit earlier, but what were the results of them then not fulfilling the command of completely destroying and wiping out the civilization? Oh, yeah. They failed ultimately to not to do that. They incorporated Canaanites into, as you mentioned before, into their uh, livelihood, and they did fall into sin. And ultimately, that incurred their deportation, the uh, Babylonian deportation, because of sin that completely infected Israel. So, yeah, there were severe consequences to them as a nation as a result of this. You know, it's worth pointing, pointing out that none of us escape the judgment of sin in our life, even before. Israel enters into the promised land, God opens up a ground and swallows a whole generation up and kills Israelites because they were unfaithful and they were sinful and they were not worthy to go trusting the promises of God to go into Israel. And also today, even believers are under a judgment of sin that leads into death. John talks about in his letter, indeed, we as Christians living a life of sin fall under the judgment here and now of God that ultimately could result in God taking us out of the world or causing us to die. And so no human being escapes the judgment of sin. And oftentimes that judgment, even for believers, can involve death. So these are all things to point to the sovereignty of God with respect to life and death. And God is the one who perfectly judges us and perfectly judges everyone, all of humanity, including all the nations. And we simply have to rest in that to a certain extent, because we're not in the position that God is in. Some people have And often when I'm talking with skeptics, they attack the God of the Old Testament. Many see God of the Old Testament as different from God of the New Testament. And you raise some issues, how God destroyed civilizations, how God destroyed the earth in a flood, how God judged and had to even kill his own people in judgment upon their sin. But, you know, when it comes to the New Testament, we have a God of grace and of love, and he's not giving these kinds of commands. So do we have a different God from the Old Testament to the New Testament? How do you explain uh, some of these actions? Yeah, to really understand and answer that, we have to read from Genesis to Revelation. We, we, We have to read the whole Bible. Because it may seem at various times and periods the grace or the love of God is emphasized versus the judgment and and death that he brings about at certain times in certain contexts. But if we can just look at the entire Bible and understand God, as I've described him theologically, being absolute goodness, this is not what you're going to get in terms of the totality. We see acts of loving kindness and forgiveness. Jonah, with respect to the Ninevites, God completely relents and forgives them because they repent. And in the New Testament, we see in the book of Revelation that God is going to bring about war on the earth as well in judgment on humanity and pour out his wrath as well in the book of Revelation. So God is not done waging war. He is not done uh, bringing temporal judgment to this world and to nations in this world and to individuals and to people in this world. But of course, this is what God does knowing everything and ultimately brings a greater good out of all of this judgment and even all the sin and evil that people bring in the world. 
Yeah, you bring up a good point there that you've got to read from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and you'll see a consistency in God there, not only of extending love and grace, but being righteous and a just God as well. Well, Doug, what are some further resources on this subject and other ethical problem passages in the Old Testament? Yeah, I think, you know, one one of the things, to, and I'll get to some uh, resources in a minute, but one of the things that often comes up that Christians get confronted with, and I was confronted with this as well, and I'm sure you've faced it too, you, you see people ask the question, is God a moral monster? The question that you asked at the very beginning of the program. Mm-hmm. And this really puts us in a difficult position to be in, because if, cause when I was first asked that question, I'm not a quick thinker on my feet, I had to uh, go home and think about it, but I thought if I answer yes, then I make God call for committing a moral evil. And if I answer no, I call into question the biblical text as the Word of God, because God did indeed issue these commands and expected them to be uh, fulfilled. And what I've kind of came to is that really this question forces me to consider God to be something that is in a category of a creature that has to act thus and so in the world. And so the right response to this question, did God command genocide or is God a moral monster, is simply to reject the question. Because not every question that is asked of God is really a good question because of who God is versus who human beings are. In fact, I kind of use the analogy that not every question of a human being is good to ask. People, someone were to ask, why did human beings create the world? They would immediately say, that question's not appropriate to ask of human beings or creatures because they're created and they didn't create anything. The categories of creating the world don't apply to human beings. And I would say the same thing. The category of morality and the category of a monster don't apply to God. God is not a moral being that needs to be improved, and he's not a created being, a monster or anything else. So if the terms don't apply to God and the terms are in the question, then the question formulated has no applicability to God whatsoever. And I think this is really important that this is really the way to respond to uphold the classical view of God. Anyone who thinks the question is God a moral monster or did God commit genocide? Genocide is something that can only be done by a human being who is sinful and fallen, who is hateful and wants to kill people. But God doesn't fit any of those categories. So again, We've got to reject the question, and this isn't evading it. It's recognizing the fact that the person asking the question has a different view of God than I have. Or even if a theist asks the questions and demands an answer, they're operating out of a different or incorrect view of God than the correct or classical view of God as I've described them here. I think that's important to keep in mind. I think there are some good resources to at least mention. I find, at least in terms of studying the Old Testament, Gleason Archer has a wonderful encyclopedia of Bible difficulties that helps with these, this passage as well as other difficult passages. And of course, Walter, Dr. Walter Kaiser, in his book, Hard Sayings of the Bible, which he wrote uh, many sections of and was the editor of, and his book on Old Testament ethics is very good as well. Uh, Dr. Norman Geiser has, a, has the big book of Bible difficulties. These are all really good books that help us deal with these passages and other passages as well with regards to this particular issue. And so I really would commend uh, those two to your listening audience for further study and further insight on, on these passages. And there are other tough passages as well. But I think if we uphold the classical view of God and pay attention to the text and the context, these are all answerable and understandable as well. 
Yeah, you raised some great points there, Doug. Doug, also tell us about the Southern Evangelical Seminary out there and, sure. you know, the resources provided, not only by the seminary, but by the website as well. Yeah, absolutely. Our website is ses.edu. That's ses.edu. And we've got something for everyone. Uh, you know, seminary has changed, and a lot of people think all oh, just pastors go to seminary, but that's not the case. We have things for high school students all the way to retired senior citizens. We have programs of study that are diplomas. You can take just classes for your own edification. We call that auditing classes. And I think that a lot of people would do well to avail themselves of the knowledge of of the scholars that teach here at Southern Evangelical Seminary. You can't get it anywhere else. It's very different to read it in a textbook and then hear a professor that can talk about it and go in directions with answering questions and dealing more in depth and detail with issues than you're going to get from just reading a textbook. So I really would encourage people to, to, to seriously consider taking a class here. Our classes are online. They're on campus. We do them all different kinds of way. You obviously don't have to come to campus. We do classes with students around the world and foreign countries online. It's a great way to get exposed to some really good, solid biblical teaching. Our specialty, obviously, is apologetics and evangelism. It's dealing with Bible difficulties, defending the inerrancy and infallibility of God's Word. Uh, these are hallmarks of our institution, and I think that your listeners would, would do well and be greatly benefited from uh, taking a course here or even working on a certificate or if they want to to actually work on a degree program. Yeah, Doug, tell us a little bit about the uniqueness of Southern Evangelical. I think it's unique in that it not only gives you a great theological foundation, but a good philosophical foundation as well. And a leader in apologetics, being able to address the challenges and issues of a post-Christian culture and those listening to us there in Asia, not even post-Christian, but a completely different kind of worldview context in which we've got to introduce the gospel. So Southern's unique in that way, isn't it? Yes, it is. In fact, one of the things that I have found very unique about the institution is the fact that we make sure that our philosophy and our biblical studies are compatible, that we indeed reason about God in a way that is compatible with Scripture. And we certainly use the Scripture, the Bible, as the bedrock for our theology. And so making those two things compatible really gives us this classical view, this classical understanding of God, as I've, I've mentioned in, in our time speaking today. But all also upholds the Bible as the infallible and inerrant Word of God. And I think when you mesh those two th things together, your philosophy and your biblical studies, you have the foundation and what you need to really develop a truly Christian worldview. You're exactly right. If you don't get the view of your God right, if the, if the view that you have of God is wrong and you read your Bible, you're going to read it in a totally different way than if you have the correct or the classical view of God. And one of the things that we're known for here at Southern Evangelical Seminary is Christian apologetics. And Christian apologetics is a defense of the Christian worldview. We don't just assume the existence of God or assume the Christian worldview. We defend it. We give argumentation for who the true God is, and from there we develop a correct worldview based on theism and understanding of miracles, and it's from there that we can argue for the truth of evidence concerning the resurrection of Jesus, his claim to deity, and the Bible being the Word of God. And that's something that we emphasize here through and through, and something that admittedly is not as prevalent at a lot of other schools. So that's Southern Evangelical, one of the leaders in 
this kind of distance learning. So if you're here in Hawaii, we've had several Hawaii students there enroll at Southern Evangelical. And if you're, you know, in Asia, wherever you may be, you can also get these great classes and get your degree without, you know, having to relocate your family to the United States. Of course, it'd be great if you could go there and be live there on the campus and interact directly with the teachers and go out for coffee and lunch with them. But, you know, next best, it's a great high-tech program that where you could really correspond with guys like Doug and Dr. Norman Geisler and other Fred Howe and other the great professors out there at Southern Evangelical. We've been talking with Doug Potter on Does God Command Genocide in the Old Testament? Is God a Moral Monster? Doug is the Assistant Professor of Apologetics and Theology at Southern Evangelical. Wonderful seminary out there in Charlotte, North Carolina. So go check them out at ses.org, ses.org. So Doug, thanks for being a guest once again here on Evidence and Answers. Once again, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you would like Pat to speak at your church or Bible study or perhaps at a conference, please give him a call at area code 808-483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. To keep this broadcast on the air, you have the opportunity to donate. Head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Be sure to share our website with your family, your friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Dr. Pat Zucran.